Hello, hello, and welcome to episode eight of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. As usual, we will start our show today with a brief overview of Canadian Authors Toronto events, and then tell you about some upcoming contests that any of our listeners can submit their work to. Then we're going to welcome new member Joyce Mbolu to Canadian Authors Toronto and invite her to read from her nonfiction book, Hard Nut to Crack. Ah, that sounds great, Chris. And following Joyce and replacing our usual interview portion of the show, we will share with you some recordings from our virtual events held over the course of 2020, some of our top hits, so to speak. And of course, we will wrap it all up with news from our members. We are incredibly pleased to have Joyce on the show with us today and cannot wait to hear her reading. So we will keep this front portion of our show short. Brandy, you were at both of our last events. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Of course, I'd be thrilled to. As you all likely know by now, Canadian Authors Toronto holds an event every month, all of them virtually for now. On Thursday, November 26th, we held a public informal NaNoWriMo write-in event hosted by myself, my partner in podcasting, Chris Gorman, and our Canadian Authors Toronto co-president, J.F. Garrard. NaNoWriMo, short for National Novel Writing Month, is a global challenge to writers around the world to write a 50,000 word novel in the 30 days of November. About 10 of us writers participating in NaNoWriMo came together via Zoom and wrote our little hearts out. In between 20 minute writing sessions and chatting about our work, we held some word sprints and the participants who wrote the most words in 10 minutes walked away with an electronic copy of J.F. Garrard or Chris Gorman's books. We also held a virtual pub night on December 10th, where a bunch of us gathered on Zoom from the safety of our own homes to share stories and spend time together in a casual atmosphere. Both events were great fun and a welcome distraction from the strangeness of 2020. A big thank you to all who attended our events this year. Also be holding a virtual event in January as well. The details will be announced in the new year. So stay tuned for more info and check out our events calendar at canadianauthors.org slash Toronto slash events. And that brings us to the writing contest. Chris, what are some of the awesome contest opportunities coming up? Well, Brandy, first up, we want to encourage all Canadian Authors Association members to submit their books published in 2020 to the 2021 Fred Kerner Book Awards. Submissions to this award just opened up recently, so you can start submitting your books now. Prizes are $400, as well as a one-year complimentary membership to the Canadian Authors Association. To enter, you must be a Canadian Authors member and submit the entry form, $30 for each title entered, and four copies of your book. 
For full details, please visit canadianauthors.org slash national slash awards slash submit for an award. I hope to see your book as one of the entries this year, Chris, and I hope the wonderful authors we've had on the podcast so far this year who have read from their published works will submit as well. Absolutely, and thank you. For those of you out there who didn't publish a book in 2020, why not try your hand at a short story contest instead? The Boulevard Magazine Short Fiction Contest for Emerging Writers is open until December 31st and is awarded to the winning story up to 8,000 words by a writer who has not yet published a book of fiction, poetry, or creative nonfiction with a nationally distributed press. $16 US fee per short story includes a one-year subscription to Boulevard and the chance to win the grand prize of $1,500 US and publication in Boulevard. And if you're not quite ready to submit a story this year, you still have until January 31st, 2021 to enter the Canadian Authors Niagara Branches 21st Annual Short Story Competition. The entry fee is $20 per story with a maximum of three submissions. Each entry must be between 1,000 and 3,000 words in length and can be fiction, nonfiction, historical fiction, or creative nonfiction. This contest is now open to all Ontario writers. You could win the first prize of $300, second prize of $200, or the third prize of $100. I'm going to start submitting my short stories to contests soon, and those both sound like amazing opportunities. They sure do, Brandy. You can see all these contests and more at canadianauthors.org slash national slash links slash awards dash competitions. And to all of our listeners who have submitted to these competitions, we wish you good luck. Now, you've probably noticed that this month's episode is a little bit longer than usual. And soon, I'm going to ask you to sit back, get comfy, get cozy, settle in, and enjoy some of the highlights and readings from the past year of Canadian Authors Toronto's virtual events. And don't worry. There's plenty of natural breaks if you can't listen all in one go. But first, this month we are featuring a Canadian author who is using her pen to give a voice to women whose voice is being silenced and who are trapped in a cycle of cultural, gender-based violence. Please welcome Joyce Umbolu, reading from her non-fiction book, Hard Nut to Crack. help us welcome to the show our special guest, Joyce Mbolu. Joyce has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Linguistics and will be studying at Centennial College to be a social service worker. 
Joyce began her journey as an educator in 2011. She has a passion for helping all children reach their potentials in reading and writing effectively. She loves to challenge students to be creative with their imaginations and take chances when learning. In 2013, she founded the Young Achievers Book Club in her home country in Africa, where she planned and delivered reading programs to strengthen literacy and communication skill, giving special attention to children who were unable to attend school. Joyce enjoys writing creatively, especially in the nonfiction genre. She has close encounters with women and girls that have experienced cultural and gender-based violence. In her debut book, Hard Not to Crack, she writes of a young woman in Africa who was abused physically, emotionally, and mentally. Joyce believes that through her stories, she can give the world a sense of what so many women go through. She believes in change, and through her stories, the voice of the voiceless will be heard. This is Joyce's first book. Her children's book is in the process of publishing and will hopefully be ready by the end of spring 2021. Hard Nut to Crack is available for purchase in Canada on Amazon.ca. And Joyce, I'd just like to say when I was uh, reading the little excerpt on Amazon before we reached out to you, I thought it, it sounded amazing. And I love using books to help highlight causes and, and things. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Brandy. <laughs> Thank you. We're so happy you could join us today. Uh, can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the book and explain the piece that you'll be reading for us? I actually wrote this book, Had Not to Crack, while thinking about young girls and women in some African communities. This sect of people have faced a lot of pressure to accept traditions and a way of life they do not agree with. It is not specific amongst the female gender alone, but men are not left out as well, for they face similar challenges. These traditions are enforced in the community by members of the family, politicians, head of clans and spiritual leaders. They create an ideology which is inconsequential as a basis of narrative to the victim. I believe this vice is carried out in some African communities, particularly in the rural areas, has made a lot of girls and women particularly confront activities that have either reduced or killed their self-esteem. These customs has also led to deaths, brutality, violation, and stigma. Victims are usually not given a say in their life choices and are forced or threatened to accept the beliefs of their forefathers who no longer exist, so as to preserve traditions that are time immemorial. These stories are not far-fetched and are still ongoing in some communities in Africa. I agree that tradition is important and should be preserved for posterity, but it should not be at the detriment of destroying people's mental, emotional, and physical health. Rather, it should strengthen virtues like love, peace, justice, and humanity amongst families and communities. Hard not to crack tells of a young woman who fought tooth and nail to protect her rights, self-worth, and life. She overcame her struggles, defeated her deep-rooted battles, and conquered. She was a young woman who wanted a normal life without pressure and control from her family and the community. 
So in Africa, a lot of women and young girls experience cultural violence. And I'll be reading an excerpt from my book. And the title is Betrayal, Confusion, and Concoctions. Fifima was accompanied by his friend Tuma, who had come from another town. Fima, Tuma, and Asabei pushed the canoe from the shore to the river, and they held onto their lighted lamps to see clearly. Asabe took her seat spot in the canoe, holding onto her flashlight while Tuma and Fifima paddled towards the next village. As they moved along, they heard a loud bang and Asabe blacked out. Asabe woke up feeling fizzled out and bewildered. She found herself in a small hut, surrounded by two women and a man chanting. They were all dressed in white clothing and had red coral beads tied around their waists. She noticed the scarification on their faces that depicted the story with images. She thought it was a dream, but realized it was real. Asabe could clearly see clearly where she was, and this made her panicky and cry, knowing fully it was a dead end. She struggled with some strength to push her way through the people that surrounded her. She pushed some more, but eventually became very tired. Asabe laid on the floor with her eyes gazed towards the tacked roof, feeling hopeless, and her emotions became a roller coaster. After a while, a woman approached her and offered her some concoction in a prostate calabash. She refused to drink the concoction, but the old woman insisted she drank out of it to gain some strength. Asabe drank the concoction and gagged severally as she swallowed. The woman standing beside her patted severally on her back to give relief. She watched her surroundings carefully and noticed a woman untie some piece of clothing pressed together. The old woman unfolded a white garment from the bundle, then tactfully inserted a piece of material through an opening to create the tie for the waist. The woman approached Asabe and commanded her to wear the clothing and accessories she had picked. Asabe was worried and asked why she had to dress in clothing that was not hat. But the old woman forcefully dressed her, giving her no opportunity to make a choice. Asabe cried with outburst and despair as the woman handled her with a hat hand. Asabe was dressed in white clothing and a set of white coral bits. The clothing was wrapped around the body from her chest and down to her ankles. She felt distressed and it affected her ability to speak out properly. She remembered her audios from her childhood to adulthood and it made her feel sad. Asabi asked to ease herself as she was heavily pressed from drinking too much concoction. She looked around to see if there was a way of escape but realized she could not make it out in one piece. As she walked towards the hut, she saw someone that looked like Fifima from afar and was convinced it was him. She moved closer to get a clearer view and walked hastily with a smile on her face. She felt relieved that she had seen someone familiar. Fifima, 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 Asabi shouted. 
Fifima walked away briskly, pretending he did not hear, and disappeared into the trees until there was no sign of him. Asabe cried out profusely, feeling alone and rejected. It was dawn and Asabe was given the same concoction she drank the preceding night. She drank the liquid with a scrunched face and in despair. She lowered her head and avoided high contact with the woman watching closely. Asabe wanted answers on why she was kept in an isolated place. She asked in a timid tone, Mama, why am I here? The old woman stared at her and replied, in due time, you will know why. Asabi sobbed and pleaded for more details, but the woman walked away, giving no further explanation. Wow. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Joyce. Thank you. Such a powerful, <laughs> powerful reading, Joyce. Thank you. Um, so just curious, the, the cover, um, the back cover of the book says you enjoy writing um, about real life experiences of people that you have close encounters with. So yes. this is a true story, not your story exactly, but true Yeah, it is a true story, you. yeah, someone. Wow. Yeah, because uh, uh, women go through a lot of violence and this story particularly directs attention to cultural violence which is an aspect of a culture that can be used to legitimize violence in its direct or structural form. Cultural violence against women manifested is manifested in all levels of social, cultural, economic, and political status of women in Africa, irrespective of their class, education, or profession. It is a problem, and I don't think the world is doing enough. And a lot of women in rural communities where they don't have internet, they don't have people to reach out to, non-governmental organizations, even uh, community centers where they could uh, report their cases to. Yeah, it's like they are locked and trapped in a small community where they don't have access to a lot of things. So my intention is to tell the world the stories of such women. When I have, you know, people that walk up to them and I hear stories. I also have my leg workers that go to these places to actually see what they go through. And there are so many things in some societies, especially in Africa, gender preference culturally favors the male child. They continue the family name, entitles him to land and property ownership. And cultural violence is an aspect of a culture that can be used to legitimize violence in the communities in Africa. Culture can trigger violence, violence and that is very true. Wow, well, thank you so much for, uh, the, these are important stories and um, I, I love that you say you wanna give the voiceless a voice. So thank you so much for doing that and for bringing attention to Absolutely. such an Thank you. And great reading, I love that you, it was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity. No, no, I really no, appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you on uh, and to help tell the story. And welcome to Canadian Authors Toronto, because I think you're a newer member. So welcome to our group. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Wow, Chris, I'm so glad Joyce could come on and share her story with us and, and share this important cause that she obviously really believes in and, and really wants people to be aware of. I'm really glad that she could come on and help us wrap up the year uh, with, with such an important story. Absolutely, Brandy. You and I are both passionate about women's rights, both here and around the world. So it's great to end the first year of our podcast with a highlight such as that. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now, for your listening pleasure over the holiday season, we've compiled short excerpts from some of our most popular online events this year. Some of our most popular events are our open mic nights. On this episode, we feature Gordon Jones reading from his novel Saving Tiberius, Rosanna Battagelli reading from her novel La Brigantessa, and Josh Wallace reading from his upcoming novel Not My Circus. Welcome everybody to our first official event of the 2021 programming season for Canadian Authors Association Toronto branch. So I'm Lee Parpart. I'm one of the co-presidents with, uh, along with JF Garrard. Tonight's open mic features 16 members um, of our association, of our branch, who will read for four minutes each. To begin with, we have Gord Jones. Um, Gord lives in Toronto with his wife, Tina, and their two cats, Crumpet and Muffin. His nonfiction, Defending the Inland Shores, was published in 2016. Saving Tiberius, a crime thriller from Bookland Press, is his first fiction novel and is due for release in the next couple of weeks. So Gord, please take it away. Thanks Lee. I'm going to be reading from uh, chapter one of Saving Tiberius, the first uh, few pages here. Beth Poole smirked as she looked across the table at the man who just issued one of the most absurd statements she's ever heard. Really? You're really asking me to believe it, it just disappeared. Morgan Watson smiled and nodded to her. He didn't know why he'd brought it up. Supper had been excellent. He loved pub grub. Plus, the conversation had been flowing very easily between them. Whenever he was on a first date, he always followed one rule, never bringing up the subject of his cat, Tiberius. He knew many women enjoyed hearing people talk about their cats, but whenever he spoke of his, he ended up telling the entire story. Although true, it sounded so unbelievable, he felt he came off as just another lying jerk trying to impress a woman. In the past, whenever he had brought up the subject on a first date, there was never a second. Really, Beth repeated. It just disappeared. And you expect me to believe that that your cat cured itself got completely of diabetes. Why did he have to go and break his rule? He knew he should never mention he had a cat which seemed to have entirely yeah, been yeah, disease until after maybe a few dates and probably more than a few, and certainly not on a first date. Perhaps it was because he already knew her for a while. He had met Beth in a yoga class he took every Wednesday. Although his buddies kidded him about his classes, he felt he really needed them. Morgan was a fencer, and the footwork involved really tightened up his body, especially his hips. Yoga helped open him back up, and he felt stretched and loose when class was over. Seemed 
no matter how many people showed up for class, Beth was always managed to be on the mat beside, in front, or behind him. He found her easy to talk with, so after five weeks of chatting before and after classes, he finally decided to ask her out. Dinner and drinks for a first date was a natural. She said yes, and they decided to hook up at a downtown craft beer pub after work the next night. Now, instead of enjoying the evening with her, he found himself on the defensive. Well, it sure seems that way, Morgan said, knowing he had to do his best to explain and make it sound like the truth and not some pile of crap. He picked up his beer, took a sip, looked around as if seeking help. You see, Tiberius has, no, sorry, I mean, he once had diabetes. It's really hard to explain. I adopted Tiberius from a cat rescue when he was just a little kitten, and a year later, he developed diabetes. I had to test his blood sugar twice a day and give him a shot every two to three days to keep his glucose levels below 10. Then, after about two and a half years, his levels stabilized on their own, and it's been that long now since I've given him a shot. And you're sure he had diabetes to begin with. That's what Dr. Evingham, his vet, said. If I went away for a three-day weekend, his glucose levels would shoot to the roof, and I'd have to give him a shot, sometimes three days in a row, to control it. Interesting, Beth commented while giving him a look, which said she really wasn't sure whether she should buy into his story or not. So, why the name Tiberius? I'm a Star Trek fan. You know, the franchise James T. Kirk was a captain of? The T is short for Tiberius. Damn, this could be strike two, thought Morgan right after answering. First, she hears what she considers a ludicrous story, and now thinks I'm a full old Trekkie. Next, she'll be asking me if I live in my parents' basement. Beth looked down at her watch and back at Morgan. It's almost day 30. I gotta get going, remember? I told you I have plans later on tonight. Yes, you did, he answered, managing to stop his server to request the bill. I'll pay soon and get going. No, we're splitting the bill. Maybe I'll let you pick up the tab next time. Let's talk about it next Wednesday after yoga. Bingo! She wants to go out with me again. She doesn't think I'm a loser. Morgan walked Beth out to the sidewalk and they said their goodbyes with a hug and she gave him a kiss on the cheek before she climbed into the rear seat and sped off into the night. Nice. There. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Next up, we have Rosanna Baticelli. Rosanna's novel, La Brigantessa, came out with Anana Publications in 2018 and was awarded gold for historical fiction in the 2019 Independent Publisher Book Awards and was also a finalist in the 2019 Canadian Authors Association Fred Kerner Book Award and the 2019 Northern Lit Award. Rosanna is also published with Pajama Press and Harlequin. Uh, so Rosanna, I'm going to ask to unmute you and you can go right ahead. Welcome. Thanks, Lee. Thanks. Okay, so I'll be reading from La Brigantessa. Calabria, Italy, 1862. A low rumble in the distance causes Gabriella to pause from her task in the henyard. She ignores the haughty protests of the bolder hands who squawk around her skirts, attempting the occasional peck. Luciano, she murmurs, where are you? She hopes he hasn't ventured to the river with his usual pack of friends. The current is swift and volatile, and Gabriella, in the tradition of Camini's womenfolk, has warned her brother of its perils. Remember poor Vincenzo, she has told Luciano countless times. God bless his soul. Vincenzo had not been much older than Luciano when he ventured off with some friends. While skipping along some flat stones by the river, one of Vincenzo's shoes had fallen off. And as he tried to recover it, he slipped into the water. On a summer day, he might have had a chance to retrieve his shoe and swim out of the water. 
But November is a month for the dead, after all, and everyone knows that it is not the month in which to tempt fate. Gabriella shivers at the memory. Eva, the boy's mother, who had been washing clothes with her back to the group, turned at the shouts of the boys and was able to just glimpse the sight of a red-clad figure slipping into the water. With a shriek, she bolted to the river, knowing that only her son was wearing red. She screamed, hands to her head, the wind whipping her hair against her face. In the distance, a rumble of thunder intensified, and she stood petrified, assaulted by the spray of the water churning around her, her eyes reflecting the blackness of the river, her mouth contorted in horror. She was convinced that she could see the devil's scarlet face twisted in a triumphant grin, his pointed ears and evil talons extended his sleek, muscled body swirling with ease as his flickering tail sliced the water like a crimson scythe. O diavolo vita, she repeated hysterically when some laborers, having returned from the fields, pulled her out of the water a few moments later. I saw the devil. He took Vincenzo. She started pulling at her hair in despair. Why? Why? What did my poor boy do to him? Si finiva vita mia. My life is over. Her eyes fluttered and she collapsed. The laborers brought Eva home in the back of a hay cart. Her husband Armando returned from the fields and didn't, didn't leave her side that night. Consumed by fever, she thrashed about, alternating between moans and shrieks. The neighbors and Armando crossed themselves with every utterance, certain that the devil had entered her soul. So shattered it was from the shock of losing Vincenzo. Armando, who couldn't bear losing his wife along with his only son, had the priest summoned in desperation along with Nicolina, the midwife. Nicolina had a gift that no one refuted. Even outsiders traveled miles to seek her counsel and purchase her, her herbs. The villagers trusted her implicitly. She had calmed neighbor Pepe's nervous tremor, eased neighbor Maria's violent headaches, cured a visiting priest of a painfully swollen abdomen, and she had successfully healed the gangrenous wound of young Domenico, who had punctured his foot with a rusty wagon nail. The villagers were certain Nicolina could concoct something to calm down Vincenzo's mother, while Don Simone performed the service to rid her body of the same devil that had taken her son. Gabriella shivers every time she recalls a story. As she scatters feed to the hens, an ominous rumble makes her look up to the sky. Surely Luciano will be home soon. He hates storms. Thanks. Thank you, Rosanna. You must have been so confused that I jumped the queue and put you in next. Um, I was working from my original list when, that I compiled when everybody came in and then I rearranged things. So we have jumped around, but thank you for uh, being so quick on your feet there. And I will resume where I left off and introduce Josh. And this is kind of a funny story because Josh just woke up. He's in Melbourne. Um, he's Canadian, but he lives in Australia and he's published a book or it has written a book or is it published yet? Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, it's just, um, I'm seeking representation. Got it. Okay. And so, um, but it, it happens to be, it is set in Toronto and, and, uh, Josh has lived in Toronto. Is that? Uh, yeah, I was born there. Mm. You're born there. Okay. So, um, so we're going to, it's perfect opportunity then to connect with Canadian writers and to share a little bit, hopefully from the book or perhaps something else. Um, Josh is a Canadian who lives in Australia, as I've said, in his first job, he wore a kilt and carried a musket at Toronto's old Fort York. 
Since then, he has been a school teacher, a technical writer, and a business analyst. He has just written his, his first novel, which is called Not My Circus. Great title. Okay, please, Josh, take it away. Thank you very much, Lee. Uh, so I'll just get it. This is an excerpt from, from that novel. I chewed a mouthful of cold chicken as I sat beside the old woman. She was dead. Once the local witch to all the kids in the street, old Mrs. Keene had been larger than life. I remembered her with cigarettes between each of her fingers. A five-year-old's memory from before my family had left Canada. Now, 13 years later, I was sure she had never actually smoked more than one at a time. She lay near me in her, she lay near me in her bed beside the dining table, very near me. The bed had been moved downstairs weeks ago so that she could be closer to her family when they visited each day. Rose, her grown-up daughter, lived just a short distance away. Shh, said little Jamie. Granny's asleep. I smiled crookedly. Yes, you could say that. I forced myself to eat more of the leftover chicken, still cold from the fridge, then stole a glance at the uncovered corpse lying on the bed beside me. She did appear asleep, though she was quite still. Her lips were slightly puckered, her face an odd shade of yellow, her wiry grey hair spilled over the pillow. I looked at my fork, optimistically loaded with chicken, and after some hesitation, I put it down. I'd arrived in Toronto that afternoon, just a couple of hours earlier, but it felt a lifetime ago. Rose, an old friend of mum's, picked me up from the airport in her aging station wagon. So you'll be staying in my mother's house, she said on the way. Mrs. Keynes? Yes, don't worry. I'm just five doors down the street. Rose paused, waiting for a break in traffic. And you're all welcome to stay as long as you like when the rest of the family comes. She gunned the sputtering engine and swung into a stream of cars. Mom hasn't been doing so well, she admitted, once we reached cruising speed. I heard. She's been in and out of hospital. Rose cleared her throat. She's got nurses coming every day, actually. I looked out the window, watching the streets of Etobicoke drift by. In the last week, Rose continued, they've been practically attending her in shifts. As we turned into the driveway of Mrs. Keene's house, the front door opened to reveal a serious-looking woman who beckoned to Rose. Oh dear, that's the nurse, Rose said as she switched off the engine and scrambled out. This might not have been the best time for me to arrive. I'd wanted to be here for the start of the school year, even if it had meant arriving ahead of the family. But it was beginning to look like it had been a bad idea. I took my things from the back of the station wagon while Rose hurried inside the house. I took my time, no need to rush. Old Mrs. Keene had passed away. I was sure of it. As I was about to go in, Rose reappeared, her face flushed. Mom's gone, she said. Her eyes brimmed with tears and then she hugged me. I hugged her back, awkwardly. After some moments, she withdrew and blew her nose into a tissue. I'm so sorry, Rose, I said. What, when did it happen? I had no idea what else to say. I barely knew her. God, this was so awkward. The timing of my arrival had been just bloody perfect. Rose sniffled into her tissue. She passed about 10 minutes ago. Floundering, I asked, what can I do to help? Nothing, but thank you, Michael. Come, I'll, sh I'll show you to your room, she said. You can unpack while I organize things. Rose showed me to a gloomy room upstairs, then left me to unpack. I placed my bags beside a quilt-covered bed and drew aside the heavy curtains. Afternoon light streamed in, catching motes of dust floating in the still air. Light glinted off the remaining glass eye of a mannequin perched in the corner. 
Despite the room's stuffy heat, I shivered. The unpacking could only be stretched so far. After folding and refolding my clothes, I braced myself and descended the stairs. Rose sat me down at the dining room table beside Mrs. Keene, my close dinner time companion, perhaps a little too close. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Josh. That's some delicate work on the edge of comedy and tragedy there. <laughs> Lovely. Look forward to hearing how it goes with your search for an agent. Wonderful. And more about the book as well. This year, Canadian Authors Toronto also participated in Indie Author Day. Here's a short snippet from a panel discussion that day between J.F. Garrard, Ed Seward, Lee Parpart, and myself, followed by some amazing readings by authors R.A. Morris and Guglielmo Dizia. Now, when we talk about passive publishing, there's different ways of becoming an author. Um, so maybe uh, someone who's been traditionally published. Ed, do you want to sort of touch on traditional publishing for us? Well, I mean, it was really a query process. So, um, and, and I did try to query agents. I've been unsuccessful so far, though. I'm going to retry that now that I am published. So publisher Porcupine's Quill accepted my, uh, my manuscript. The paid in advance, yeah, it's not, it's not many dollars. I would say that you know, the biggest aspect we're going to talk about the economics is not the advance or not the royalties, at least up front. I mean, unless you, you, know, you happen to, to sell a lot of copies. It's the fact that the publisher pays everything, right? So um, the cover art, the editing, everything. All right, so there's no out-of-pocket costs for the author. There are royalties, but that all depends on, on how much uh, the book sells. And we know that books tend to, on average, not sell uh, that many. You know, the author does not have control over the final product. Yes, um, actually, there's an interesting issue out there right now with a uh, with a children's book where there's a, an author, you know, battling his publisher over the way it was uh, illustrated. That. That sense of it, I never had at all. Um, I had all kinds of input and was was very satisfied with the amount of uh, input and, and what was accepted. Okay, so traditional, I think, is what we usually hear about the most, you know, the penguins and the random house, etc. Now, self-publishing, this sort of popped up, I'd say maybe over a bit over a decade ago with Ingram Sparks and the Amazons, where you can actually just finish a manuscript and make your own book. I sort of equate it to a little bit like building a house where you're hiring contractors to publish your own book. So you do, you do everything. You write the manuscript, you find an editor, you find a cover artist, you do all the marketing. Well, one big advantage is because there's no literary agent, there's no publishers that you get to keep all the royalties. The only person you would pay is a distributor who would help you distribute the book. But mind you, because you don't have as much marketing power, you probably won't sell as many books as traditional publishing and marketing is very expensive. But at the same time, you know what, when I finished, I finished an East meets West vampire book and I queried for close to two years, I think. And I was being told that, you know, vampire mythology is a European thing. Why are you throwing Asian crap into it? So it was very difficult because they were like, we can't sell this book because if they can't sell it, they're not going to buy your manuscript. And at the end of the day, it's a business, right, for the publishers. So fine. Uh, so in the end, I did a Kickstarter and um, I raised some money and I opened a company. I published it. I hired a professional editor. I mean, hiring a professional editor because it was a fantasy book and it was such a big book. It was a couple thousand dollars. So a book is a very expensive endeavor. 
to go through if you're going to self-publish properly, I think, if you're going to hire professional editors and stuff, you have to be willing to pay the price, I guess. And I'm never going to earn the money back um, from the first book, but it's more like uh, it's a project of love, really. I mean, otherwise, why would you even go through all this pain and suffering? But self-publishing, I think it's also a double-edged sword. It's very easy to do. But at the same time, you see people not hiring editors and they just put crap. So it's sort of gone a bad rep. But I think over time, people do realize, you know, the ones that do stay on the top, they're willing to put time and effort into making a good book. I think they're the ones that will stay the longest. And they're, in a way, they're going to be the top of the indie author list, right? Like people will start recognizing uh, you regardless whether or not you were traditional or self-published. And I think hybrid publishing, I think, Chris, you've had some experience with this. Yeah. Uh, so I chose hybrid because A, I, I wanted access to be able to get my book into stores to have that option. And the good thing about hybrids like Friesen Press, for instance, is they get you into the Ingram catalog, wide distribution across the world, right? The other reason, for a long time, I actually did consider traditional publishing. I was kind of going between the two in my head of which one I wanted to. But at the end of the day, I wanted the control of the cover choice and the content of what was in the book was very important to me as well. I'm very passionate about Canada and Canadians and the environment. And I didn't want to have to give any of that up per se because of a publishing house saying, you cannot put this in the book. I did put it through various rounds of professional edits, which as you mentioned, were extremely expensive. I think I wound up paying somewhere in the neighborhood of almost $6,000 for the edits, but it was worth it for the changes that it made to the story to improve the story without sacrificing anything. The other problem is, of course, Canadian author, American publishing houses are a little bit more hesitant to take you on especially when you're writing a fantasy book based in Canada. Mm -hmm. And in Canada itself, there was really only one fantasy publishing house that would consider it, but then it was too long for that. So at the end of the day, I was really quite happy with choosing Friesen Press, really happy with the hybrid choice. I get higher royalties than I would through the traditional publishing houses. Did it cost a lot of money? It did. You're right. I probably won't get that money back for book one, but I'm close. You know, I've, I've actually made my first six months goals, which was to sell a hundred copies. Uh, as of the end of September, I was at 153. So I was quite happy for that On to the next six months. Now, Lee, you work for Iguana, which is a hybrid press. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about the intake? Like not everyone can have their manuscript published, right? There's still sort of a vetting. It's not the same as self-publishing where you just do whatever you want, right? Well, yeah, I mean, Iguana Books does have a side of the business, which is technically a separate business, Colbert Communications, that will allow for, will allow you to publish anything and we'll just simply package it for you and distribute it for you. But on the Iguana Books side, because our name is attached to each project, yeah, there's a vetting process. It's just that it's flipped. The values are flipped from what you see in traditional publishing. In traditional publishing, uh, approximately, one to three percent of all manuscripts are chosen 
Um, it depends, I mean, that, that's a big range depending on what kind of traditional you're talking about, small or, or large, but really never more than 3% of, of what comes in gets published. It's the opposite for us. We, I wouldn't say that we're all the way up to 97, but we're maybe close to 95% of everything that comes in. The thing about certain hybrids and certainly the, the one that I work for is that we place a lot of emphasis on the editing process. So we will develop an undeveloped book to the point where it's publishable in its best possible form to get it to, to the point where it can be sold with pride by us and by the author. R.A. Morris holds a Master of Environmental Studies from York University and has lived and worked in the Honduras, uh, Fort Goodhope, and the territorial capital of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. Beyond what separates us in his first novel, he lives in Toronto. Everyone. This book is kind of unintentionally proven pretty prophetic uh, with the events of 2020, um, but it's set in the future that basically about if we continue on this path of ecological degradation, and it's told from the perspective of four main characters. So I'm gonna read from a later chapter, the character it's being told by is named Elliot and is in Eastern Europe. And I think, you know, it's a, interesting section to read because it's about the challenges facing democracy, which I think are fairly evident uh, this week. The vote was set to happen at noon. The sky was cloudy, which made the already dreary square an even duller gray. The only other colors were those on the banners of the various factions. More people, having heard about the vote, had returned. Three booths with numbers were set up in front of gates of the central building. Posters are being passed around explaining the three options. Option one being the centralized democratic, democratic government preferred by United Earth. Option two being the independently run sections of the surrounding area with potential trade agreements. And option three, the free for all of go wherever and do whatever. It was hard to tell which of the various groups was the largest. Many people seemed to come and go. Most of the people seemed to have no particular allegiance and congregated in the middle of the square. Just before noon, it began to rain. Not a hard rain, but enough to be uncomfortable. A large tent was erected over the voting booths. The intent was to have three lines of all form. Each voting booth had a box for each option. People started to line up, but the rain wasn't letting up, so it was a slow trickle of people. About an hour after voting had started, many members of United Earth began to line up. Anna dragged me along, but I couldn't help but notice that William remained behind, still clutching his gun. Some people took only a second to make their choice and move on. Others spent minutes agonizing despite having all the time in line to assess the various options. Anna went ahead of me and with no hesitation picked the first box. She smiled at me as she turned away. I followed wondering if I was making the right choice. The rain finally stopped in the late afternoon and the sun began to peek through the clouds. A good sign, I thought. Announcements were made that the voting booths would be closed in the next hour. William had remained somber and distant all day, while Anna had joined many of the other United Earth members in debating the details, believing that option one would win, William sat in the corner alone. I looked at him as he fiddled with the gun, staring at the ground, and finally asked him why he didn't vote. He shook his head, what's the point? Do you really think my vote will change the outcome? That depends, we don't know what the outcome will be. Did you used to vote back when elections were held? Yes, like all those other fools that thought it changed anything, we swallowed the promises believing each candidate that guaranteed change, elicited hope, and vowed to do whatever other pointless buzzwords 
only to see the system become more corrupt, favoring the established order and continuing our self-destructive spiral. I'm not that naive anymore. There are good people here, but good people never have the stomach to stand against the bad. They lack the means to do what's necessary to remove that threat because that would make them no better than the ones we oppose. I knew how foolish my response must have sounded. The truth was I understood where William was coming from. My mother had been a good person, but she died anyway. Good people had been imprisoned and sent here because they hoped for a better world. History was full of good people doing amazing things, but dying all the same, having only reached the base of the mountain they tried to ascend. I didn't believe that those other people were bad per se, just lacking imagination. They were selfish, disconnected or ignorant, products of a broken society. William just looked at me and smirked. He knew I didn't believe what I was saying. Deep down, I was a cynic. Anna kept me going, and that was good enough. Let's hope that thinking doesn't get us killed, he stated, getting up and walking away. The voting booths had closed, and the leaders from the various groups took the ballot boxes to the main building, where it was expected to take all night to tally the results. It was nearly midnight when William returned. He didn't say a word, but lay down in the room that the three of us had taken, which used to be somebody's office. The carpet was old and uncomfortable. We had two small blankets and a couch cushion between us. William lay against the wall in the corner, covered by a large winter coat he'd found. He'd slept in worse conditions. Anna had the couch cushion propped against the wall to use as a pillow. We shared the two blankets. Anna was positive that option one would carry the vote. I wasn't so sure. Even if option one did win, there'd be so many things to figure out. Rebuilding a functioning society would take time. It was a sleepless night for Anna. William was sound asleep in the corner, his gun propped against the wall. I stared at Anna, wondering what she was thinking. She was chewing on her fingernails. She didn't speak, but I could tell she was preoccupied with a thousand thoughts. As the sun began to rise, the sounds of gunfire erupted. Thank you. Very fitting story for what everyone's uh, going through right now in the world. Guillermo Diza is an actor and writer who hails from Sicily. His artistic pursuits have led him to some of the greatest cities in the world, Rome, New York City, and now Toronto. The Transaction, his debut novel, won the 2016 Mariner Nimmut Award and was a finalist of the 2020 International Book Awards Literary Fiction category. He was also nominated Most Promising Author 2020 by the Marimichi Reader. So let's welcome Guillermo. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming, award-winning author. Yay! <laughs> the Transaction right here, published by Granic Editions. The Transaction tells the story of DeAngelis, uh, uh, an inscrutable businessman from the north of Italy who's traveling to the south to broker uh, a real estate transaction uh, on behalf of his boss. But nothing goes as planned. The train is on, breaks down in the middle of nowhere, and he finds himself basically embroiled in a criminal conspiracy, but also trapped in an existential crisis. So in order to find out what, what, what went wrong with his transaction, he sets out on a reckless Sisyphean sleuthing. So he has to confront both the locals who are conspiring to protect their secrets at all costs, but also his, uh, his own psychological demons. First off, I'd like to clarify that this is not by any stretch an interrogation, shall we say. No charges have been filed against you. Of course, we don't know what the future holds. He pauses, looks me square in the face and roars with laughter. What charges? What are you talking about? Anyway, 
And he says, after his whole body stops quaking, there's no need to worry. I'm not worried. The brigadier who's been hovering at the edge of my peripheral vision sidles up to the desk, standing next to the maresciallo and across from the appuntato. Oh, good, good, very good, the maresciallo says, exchanging several glances with his underlings. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind. I don't say anything. How's your leg, by the way? You know, it's, it's appalling what happened to you, this day and age. I bet these kinds of things don't happen in the north, huh? Ah, what am I saying? I'm sure there are crazy dogs over there, too. Aren't there? I don't know. It seems I'm not basing this on any scientific study or anything, although the so-called science, my dear De Angelis. Let's just draw a pitiful veil over it. Anyway, it seems to me that Sicilian dogs are angrier, shall we say. Although, I thought you wanted to ask me a couple of questions. The brigadieres and the Apuntato's faces freeze, twisted like Venetian masks in a disquieting, almost comical grimace of dismay. Yes, of course, Marcello says, shifting in his chair and running his thick fingers through his gray speckled hair. Does the name Filippo Mancuso mean anything to you? No. What were you doing at the train station of Colasberta? The train broke down. I was actually forced to spend the night there. Can anyone confirm this? What? That the train broke down? Why don't you call the Ferrovia dello Stato? The Maraschello's face turns flinty. You can ask the, the station agent, small man, cross-eyed. One more question, then you're free to go. What is the purpose of your visit? Business. What kind of business? The company I work for is trying to purchase a lot. Who's your contact down here? Giuseppe Tomasini, but... I haven't been able to get in touch with him yet. I see. Well, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. And why is that? Did you send this? The Marcello asks, producing a small piece of stationery with something scribbled on it. What is it? The Marcello hands it to me. It's the message I sent with the help of the toothless employee to Pepe just yesterday. So? Yes, it's mine. I couldn't reach Pepe with the phone, so I left a message for him. But why do you have it? We found it on Tomazzini's body. Body? Giuseppe Tomazzini and Filippo Mancuso were shot dead yesterday in plain daylight inside the train station here, outside of Figalia. I... That's all for now, Mr. De Angelis. The brigadier will take you to your lodging. I'm afraid I don't have a place to stay. Apparently the landlady decided to rent out my room, which was fully paid for. Did she? Yes. Don't worry, the brigadier here will handle it. I don't know, she seemed quite firm on it. She wouldn't even open the door. Firm, you say? The marshal and the brigadier squint at each other. Well, let's see if we can change your mind, the marshal says, barely able to finish his sentence before erupting into another and even bigger guffaw. The brigadier follows suit. We'll talk some more, Mr. DeAngelis. He manages to spit out between fits of phlegmy cough. We'll talk some more. Thank you. We wrap up the highlights portion of our show with this featured section from our May event on Being an Independent Author, which featured the 2019 Whistler Independent Book Award winner, Anne Shortell, and Canadian author Michael Newman.
after amazing presentations of insightful and helpful ideas, Anne and Michael took questions from the audience. This is a selection of these questions. Hi, Ed. Hi. Well, actually, um, I want to do this on behalf of Cream. Any thoughts on publishing on Kindle, KDP? So for Anne and Michael, any thoughts on publishing on Kindle? You know, this is something I want to look at myself because I haven't done an audiobook. And unless things have changed at Friesen, they don't do audiobooks. I've been thinking a lot about this myself. And the only downside that I can see with KDP is that the, the libraries can't get your book. You're not publishing wide, right? You publish, it's in a sense, you're publishing to a big audience. It's the Amazon audience. You know, you can't go on Kobo or Apple iBooks or Google Play or Nook. And I have sold some on Kobo, but most of my online sales have been Amazon. So if I just want to do that, sell on Amazon, that's, it's a great idea. If you want to be in the library system, it doesn't work. I've considered KDP, but I didn't want to be totally beholden to Amazon for everything, so I decided to bypass KDP. So we had another question from Susanna. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Michael. And nothing original from me. I'm just following up. If you can speak to um, the Indie Author Project you mentioned earlier. Yes. Yes. Uh, now, Michael, you your book is uh, in the Indie Author Project, right? Yeah, it yes. is. And uh, yeah, I didn't know about it originally. They have a competition that people can enter. Chris, Chris, and I didn't know about that. So I contacted them last fall and said, do you still consider books for the library, even if they weren't in the competition? And they said yes, and they considered the book, and they chose it, and they also have chosen it for something called the commercial collection or commercial curation, which means uh, when download the book digitally from the library. At some point, I'm going to see a few cents, which is something I never thought would happen with an ebook at the library. I have asked PLR about it as well, but I haven't got a real answer yet about whether they're measuring that at this point. The Indie Author Project, uh, if you look it up online, it's throughout the US and only in Ontario right now in Canada. They're looking at books and putting them in libraries and then they are choosing uh, some, some state and provincial winners and promoting them and uh, they're, they're offering to print books if you win. You know, it's the, they're also promoting the concept that you can print library editions of your books. So there's a lot of information on that website. And it shows, I think, with COVID, you know, the libraries, as we all know, have been going in a different direction. And this is part of the new distribution model. What I have done, I did a blog tour Basically, it's virtual tour arranged by someone that has the attention of book bloggers who write reviews, and I've been quite happy with the reviews that I've gotten from it, from various bloggers. By the way, Anne, I've been approached by somebody that wants me to advertise in Publishers Weekly, saying that that's how you pick up traditional publishers, and... I'm thinking about it, but not too hard because it's quite expensive. How have you found it? 
Well, I didn't advertise in Publishers Weekly, but I submitted the book for review. Publishers Weekly has changed their approach since I did it. I was really lucky that they chose the book for review because it was a 250 to one chance. They said, you know, they have a thousand submissions every month at that point from indie writers, and they chose about four books, and mine was one. Uh, and uh, again, I think it was because of the other reviews, the Kirkus review, probably, I don't know. But uh, they have the Book Life Prize as well, which you can enter. It costs either 100 or 150 US. And then you, in a sense, you get a review as a result of that on their indie site. They also now are doing indie paid reviews. I think it's called Indie Select. Is, have you looked into that, Michael? And through Publishers Weekly? And that will get you in the back of the, of the publication with a review. It's not in any way guaranteed to be a positive review, but if you, you know, you've had other positive reviews, so you, you tend to have an idea what it's going, what, what it, I found that the Publishers Weekly Review pretty much matched the Kirkus and Forward reviews. So if you've tested other reviews, it would be worth looking at that. And I, I don't know, it all depends of course on, on the cost. People definitely in the industry and libraries read Publishers Weekly. I had a jump the month that review came out and that was libraries and I couldn't get my book in the Toronto library system. I went into the reference library to look at the copy of Publishers Weekly. They didn't have it yet. I was chatting with the reference librarians. They said, well, look up the online review. And when they saw it, they said, we're going to send a note that this book should be purchased. So as it was for because of Publishers Weekly. I have one that was submitted previously uh, by someone who couldn't be here, which was, could you tell us a little bit about the research process that you went through for your books? You both wrote about historical events. Right. For writing the book. I'm doing this all over again because uh, I'm writing... This, I'm, my girl, Clara Swift, is out having more misadventures in Canadian history right now. And uh, for me, it was a balance and, and the workshopping this in, in the Stanford course really helped me with this, a balance of the truth and the story, right? So the, I used a lot of the well-known facts. There are, there's a lot of documentation about the assassination of Darcy McGee, the trial, the man who was hanged, the fact that his family always said he didn't do it. You know, the, so, and uh, the question was always there, even if he did it, did he act alone? Were there other people involved? Was it the, the Fenians who became the IRA who did it? What happened? So it's our great Canadian unsolved mystery. And, uh, uh, but I also have things in the book that are not true. I took Sir Johnny MacDonald to the, to the funeral in Montreal. Uh, because I wanted to layer in some of his involvement in, in the investigation and later in the trial. I wanted to set that up. So I, I, you know, I had him not only in Ottawa, but he represented, you know, put through his voice some of the, the facts. Um, I moved a fire where the, the, the site of the 
of the sh of the shooting that the building later burned down just around the time of the of the hanging and the question was was it retribution uh, i moved it to um before the hanging instead of just after the hanging because that meant that my character was devastated at that moment and had nowhere to go and ended up working as a nursemaid when uh, the McDonald's hydrocephalic daughter was born. So, you know, to bring my character more into the story, um, there, so there's, you know, you have to work with what you've got. And I also say inspired by rather than based on. There's a huge amount of history in the book, but it's fiction. I had somebody else do it. The research that I did is mostly based on books that I've read, that I've bought, that I've borrowed. Uh, read a lot of books in the Second World War, read a lot of books on the Middle East Wars. And then of course, uh, I had my father stories to rely on as far as what happened at Mauthausen and as well as my trip to Israel and uh, uh, added, added to the research. And then of course there is Google, which provides an awful lot of background information and a lot of the things that you can write about historically and points you in a lot of directions that you can go to get additional information. So as I mentioned before, the background and the stories in the book, the backgrounds are based on historical facts. Uh, the, some of the characters are historical figures, obviously, and, but the main characters, the protagonist and the antagonist are figments of my imagination that I made up based on uh, an amalgam of characters that I came up with and decided to go with. But um, again, there was a lot of research and both uh, Kirkus and um, uh, others have commented on the uh, amount of research that they felt must have gone into this book. They say it was meticulously researched. So they were all complimentary on the research side. And I think Michael and I, in a sense, that to me, there are two great strands of story in this country. There's the Aboriginal strand and there's the immigrant strand, and we weave them, right? Michael and I are both on, on the immigrant strand. And although my book wasn't based personally, my mother was an immigrant. And I realized as I was writing my girl that, you know, she was based on, you know, you know things that, that are in our archives, the National our Archives in Ottawa, and she was based on stories from Pier... 21 in Halifax, but she was also based on my mother's experience. Right? So you draw on things. She, like my mother, crawled into a closet to cry so nobody would hear her. You know, was that, those, that, you know having, having to keep the face, the, what she was educated, but she was working as a housemaid because that's the job she could get. So you end up, don't we all end up drawing on our own private personal scar when we, when we create our characters' scars? 
Lily, you had a question? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm loving this so much. You're, you're both giving so much information and just very quickly, Anne, you mentioned about audiobooks. Um, just Iguana Books has entered into a new arrangement with Wild Horse Production or Wild Horse Recordings. And we have very reasonably priced um, audiobook production available to us now just starting this month. But I am really curious, and it just sounds like you have exploited, and I, I use that term in the most positive way, that you've exploited every opportunity to get the word out about this book. And, and I think you laid the foundation so beautifully by, by taking the course at Stanford. Um, I know we have, we have a book by Mark Frieden that's also that's on a World War II theme and he took a course at U of T in, in the writing program there and I feel like that's a strong foundation and then you went and you you know you you, you did all, you've used your beta readers and you've spoken to the importance of that and but I love the tie-in articles that you have um, arranged for yourself to be able to place in various publications and I don't remember all the details but I'm wondering if you can talk about how useful that is. Do you, do you think, and, and your, your book lends itself and, my, and Michael's book really lends itself as well. Any book with an historical foundation lends itself well to writing articles that could appear in, you know, in newspapers and magazines. Is that a good thing to do? Does it pay off? Does it, is, is it useful or does it just take a lot of time? I wish I could have done more of it. Uh, I, I uh, did one in the Kingston Whig Standard, which was about how my family crept into the story. And it helped that I'd been a reporter at the Kingston Week Standard many, many, many years ago. So, uh, you know, they didn't know me, but I could, you know, I could say I'm a local. I've got a lot of cousins. A lot of them think they're in this book. Okay. So uh, that, uh, that helped. And they've been, you know, they also um, then later promoted my, my book launch, my book signing in December. Uh, in their in their what's happening page because they knew me, uh, and the citizen was just fantastic because that brought it to Ottawa's attention. And at the bottom, they said, you know, signing books on this date uh, at this bookstore. So, um, but it definitely you can't write about. I wrote a book. It has to be, you know, this is why Darcy McGee is important, or uh, this is this is. Uh, about the writing process. So, yeah, I think the fact that I was a journalist helped me frame those stories. Uh, but also you have to understand you're not going to get paid for it. It's time you're going to put in that as a writer, many people will say, oh, if you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to do it. But it's, it's the opposite, right? Because otherwise you'd be paying to put an ad in that publication. So, uh, and then in the Celtic themed magazine that I wrote for, I wrote about the fact that I didn't think the man who was hanged was guilty, right? He was, because he was an Irishman and people there were interested in that concept. If he wasn't, you know, that why was he targeted? Was, you know, uh, why did I believe that? Then there are other things I could have written about, about the trial how it compared to the you know, other trials that were going on in Canada at that time that I didn't get written. But um, yeah, I would say it did help. It helped me get television interviews. And television interviews gave me the only video clips I've got because I haven't done any videos myself or interviews on video. So I have one from Ottawa from a cable station, one from Global in Kingston and a cable station in Kingston. So that... It's, 
you know, that is definitely, I would encourage people to pitch stories. In fact, what I'd encourage people to do is to write the story. I wrote those stories and I didn't sell them an idea. I offered them a story, a story that was, that was relevant, that was timely and that was free. Ed, you have a question there? Well, I just wanted to follow up, with Michael. This idea of blog tour. What does that? What does that mean? Can you can you delve into that a little bit? Explain that to us. Sure. There are people that uh, there are individuals and companies that write that run blog tours, and um, in essence, what happens is they will put out your book to their blog contacts, people that they're in contact with that do book blogging and they will apply to take your book and write review of your book on their blog. And you have also the opportunity, they have some things called spotlights, which basically presents your book without a review, but spotlights your book. And then they have blog posts where you get to post on their blog, comment as to various things that you did writing the book, how you came to write it, what the process was, and as well as they've got a blog interview where you've got an interview with one of the blogs and you write about the journey of writing the book, how you came up with the idea, how the characters fit into the book, and what happens in the book. And you, you get to be interviewed on that. And it's not a live interview, it's a written interview because it goes on their blogs. But I had 18 bloggers that wrote about and wrote a review on the book. Thank you for listening to some of 2020's Canadian Authors Toronto highlights. Of course, we weren't able to feature all of our readings or all of our events in just this episode. So stay tuned for more episodes featuring even more exciting content. Well, Chris, before we end today's show, we do have some amazing news from our members to share with our listeners. Corinne Balou has co-authored the book Italy Someday with Shirley Lum, which is available through Kindle Direct Publishing. It's a story of their journey that started with a fateful meeting in 2009 and resulted in discovering new places, including a trip to Italy and a food and wine tour. You can purchase your paperback or your ebook copy at amazon.ca. In National Association news, the 2020 Fred Kerner Book Award winner was announced at our November annual general meeting. Congratulations to Adrian Drobnis, winning with her stunning poetry collection, Salt and Ashes. Congratulations also go to the four shortlisted authors, Nancy Jo Cullen for the Western Alienation Badge, Bob Joseph with Cynthia F. Joseph for Indigenous Relations, 
insights, tips, and suggestions to make reconciliation a reality. Pamela Porter for her poetry collection, Likely Stories, and Jennifer Wynne Weber for With Glowing Hearts. And thank you to everyone who submitted to the 2020 Fred Kerner Book Awards. So one last thing before we go, as we told you on our last episode, we are planning something special for our listeners when we reach 1,000 downloads. So to help us get to that 1,000 download mark, please spread the word, like us on your favorite social media, share us with your friends, and subscribe to the podcast. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our eighth episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you for being with us this month, and we will return with a new episode on January 23rd. Happy holidays, everyone, and a wonderful new year. May 2021 bring you all the best. Bye-bye, 2020.